Brought to you by Moonbeam Multimedia. This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024. So far, it's fine. Yeah, so far, so good. You're not back at work just yet while we're recording this, but you're no. about to go. Sadly, yeah. it's imminent. Looking forward to seeing the kitties in the new year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways, mm-hmm. Uh, moving on. Okay. <laughs> Next episode, we'll see. Next episode is our 100th episode. Can you believe that we have made it? No. All this way. When no. we started this podcast many years ago, we didn't. No. I'm not sure we expected to be going this long. So we're grateful that no. we uh, are able to do it. We're looking forward to that. We're going to deal with some uh, some FAQs for teachers, everything you ever wanted to ask uh, mm-hmm. your teachers, but maybe we're too afraid to do so. And we have some great questions from our listeners. We'll be getting to those. So thank you. Thank you for sticking with us. Thanks for supporting the show. And uh, yeah, episode it's been one. fun. Yeah, we're almost almost to 100. I, we should make ourselves a trophy or something. Put, mm. put it on the bookshelf. Okay. Yeah. I'll yeah. work on that. Okay. All right. Yeah. The only announcement is, w- that I would think of would be go ahead and sign up for our email newsletter. You can do that on our website, 16 to com. All spelled out. It's at the bottom of every page if you mm-hmm. would like to sign up. Uh, we don't have, we won't spam you. We don't have a whole lot of news. We don't share very often, but just in case you do want to hear about yep, news, yep. events, upcoming episodes, stuff like that, go ahead and sign up for our email newsletter. And with that, you want to just get into our education headlines? Yeah. For starting off the year? We're starting off the year on a really <laughs> strong note, now that I'm looking at the order of what we yeah, did. Yeah, we maybe didn't order these very upliftingly. Let's just get into it. Okay. Here we go. Okay. This is from the AP. Yeah. Students around the world suffered a huge learning setback during the pandemic, a study finds. Yeah. Uh-huh. Shocking. Yes. Yes. Oh, it only gets worse. Okay, so here we go. The state of global education was given a bleak appraisal in the Program for International Student Assessment, which is the first study to examine the academic progress of students in dozens of countries during the pandemic. Yeah, this is a big, this mm-hmm. study is run frequently. It's a big international so cohort. They, f- they found that the average international math score fell by the equivalent of three quarters of a year of learning. Oh. And reading scores fell by the equivalent of a half a year. So we lost... Almost a year, of a year of math. Yeah. Wow. And half a year of reading. Okay. Is um, that really is that surprising to you? I don't think that really surprises no. me all that much, given the chaos of, yeah, just the chaos mm-hmm. of COVID and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. learning and how I, schools were disrupted. And I am surprised that the average wasn't higher. Yeah, I am actually too. Just given, I don't know. We keep talking about this sort of anecdotally, but it feels like. From the teachers that we know mm-hmm. and who are working in classrooms now, it feels like everyone notices that <laughs> something is different now mm-hmm. and not great. We're just working through it. Yep. And there are a lot of issues of motivation and all kinds of struggles. So, yeah, anyway. Okay. So the report uh, made special note of concerns with Germany, Iceland, and the Netherlands. Oh. They all saw drops of 25 points or more in math. And 20 points is an equivalent to a year of learning. Oh, so they're more than a year. So in they countries. have lost, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh-huh. Um, so across all of the participating countries, the average math score fell by about 15 points since 2018. Reading scores fell by about 10 points. Hmm. Um, neither subject had seen a change of more than five points previously. And the good news is, is that science uh, barely changed. So some good news for the science data. <laughs> That's weird. Mm-hmm. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Why mm-hmm. is it weird? I don't know why science didn't change. Little change, you know, I'm sure there was a little bit. Well, especially compared to the others. Yeah, I would think that math and science would go more hand in hand on the data. I but... wonder if that says something about how we're teaching science. math and reading Well, oh, yeah, yeah, versus science. yeah. yeah, yeah. Are we doing something that isn't like, what does that tell you? Are we doing better in how we're teaching science that the pandemic didn't impact it as much? Or are we doing worse in how we're teaching science? I don't know. That the pandemic I didn't can't impact. decide. Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
Not the worst news for the U.S., though. Okay. Uh, we have historically lagged in math. Yeah. I think we knew that. Especially compared to those other countries that you mentioned. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the average math score fell by 13 points. Okay. Um, reading and science stayed mostly even. And overall, the country improved to number 26 in math, and it was up three spots from 2018. So even though we dropped in points, we gained three spots in the ranking, which means we weren't as bad as other countries. We're taking advantage of the failures of our mm-hmm. neighbors. Okay. Um, and we ranked number six in reading and 10th in science, up two spots and one spots, respectively. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. I'm always a little bit suspicious of rankings, Uh across the board and student achievement because they can just they don't always tell the story that you think they're telling is i guess what i would say about that i've i've always agree with that i don't i mean it's not a great report well i've always been suspicious these ones are a little bit harder to game but like the u.s news and world report college rankings like i've always been very deeply suspicious of that and in the last couple of years we've been able to see why Mm -hmm. there should be good suspicion of that because like well, it was Columbia, right? That was mm-hmm. gaming the. They got caught gaming the system, basically, to have better uh, rankings in that report. Because every, co- I mean, I did certainly every college-bound student that I know of. Everyone is told to go look at that report to get a sense of what elite colleges are and how they rank and everything. And mm-hmm. I've always thought that it's a little bit, it's a little bit silly mm-hmm. at a certain point to put a lot of eggs in the basket of those kinds of rankings, yeah, but. Anyway, some people value it. These are a little bit uh, easier to compare because sure. we usually have a typical measure of like a standardized test against which mm-hmm. students are assessed. So anyway, interesting stuff. As we will continue to see, I'm sure the pandemic had a huge impact mm-hmm. on our mm-hmm. our educational progress just overall. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this next story, we've talked about this a little bit, but in other episodes, we talked about our for-profit colleges for-profit, and yeah. universities. Um, we have we a talked whole, about this one. Yeah, I think we did actually talk about Grand Canyon University in that episode, um, if I'm recalling correctly. But anyway, the Federal Trade Commission is suing Grand Canyon University, GCU, for alleged deceptive advertising and illegal telemarketing practices. Yikes. And this is exactly what we were talking about in that episode about how aggressively these schools mm-hmm. tend to recruit students who probably can't always uh, secure the funds, pay or, yeah. for what they think they are paying for. So anyway, the FTC is accusing GCU of misleading prospective doctoral students about the costs of their mm-hmm. doctoral degrees, which is interesting. They have allegedly advertised that the total cost of their doctoral programs is some they've for some reason estimated it as a cost of like 20 courses i think which is significantly under where that it seems would like not many courses at yeah all i don't know how they do courses and credits but the I whole point of it the lawsuit was alleging that they're basically saying that it's going to cost way less than it actually will cost mm. to complete the degree um rude they've been accused of misrepresenting their nonprofit status which is fascinating mm-hmm. um gcu is a for-profit but according to the F- ftc they somehow marketed themselves as a, as a non-profit potentially to attract mm-hmm. students and then they also are being accused of engaging in abusive telemarketing is it FTC. all telemarketing abusive <laughs> for real what <laughs> what telemarketing isn't how, abusive how abusive would it be if yeah that's remarkable <laughs> so it's alleged that gcu made illegal telemarketing calls using purchased data potentially harassing potential students yeah okay so not good not good for gcu but like i said in that episode before we we talked about all kinds of ways in which these for-profit universities tend to behave badly toward their own students mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> and potential students good, good okay it's going well so what's the uh the final headline here okay for this, week? this one actually kind of circles back uh-huh. on my first one okay this is from the journal and it's an article that states New Zealand to ban phones in schools under new prime minister. So mobile phones will be banned in schools across New Zealand after the selected elected. How do they get a prime minister? They uh, elect him. I would assume that they elect. Okay. Their prime well, they ministers. have a new prime minister and he's a conservative. His name is Christopher Luxon. And he decided that this was one of his must-do things in his first 100 days in office. Okay. And it was announced in early December that they would be banning mobile phones in schools. Um, This is due largely because of their plummeting literacy rates. Oh. And at one point, New Zealand schools once boasted some of the world's best literacy scores, but levels of reading and writing have declined to the point 
that some researchers fear there is a classroom crisis. Yeah. And the article stated that more than one third of 15 year olds can barely read or write. Uh, okay. Well, first of all, I would love your take on this, but I am not sure that banning phones is going to have much of an influence at all on the literacy rate. I'm going to guess it's not. I, and that's not because I think that phones aren't a distraction, because they certainly are. Sure. But this sounds an awful lot like a controversial political move that is likely to generate a lot of buzz mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily likely to generate a lot of actual I agree with learning that. results. It makes headlines. Look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a big word, ban, right? Like that. that's a hot topic word. Well, you and I so. talked about this a lot because you and I, as users of technology, I think we both think that it's important to help people understand how to how and when to use technology as a tool and how to responsibly use it and ethically use it and just banning technologies altogether i in my experience doesn't tend to have the supposed good effects that people think that Mm-mm. it will have <laughs> i mean as the teacher i'm like okay is this one of those things that i have to deal with it Mm-hmm. Like, do I have to check book bags? Do I have to go through lock? I don't know. It's just, it sounds like a lot of work. My my thing is here is that if you've got an issue with literacy rates, I would suggest that you start by looking at how you're teaching literacy, which is what we're doing in this country now because mm-hmm. of all kinds of, we've been talking about it over the last year or so, but all of this reporting on phonics instruction yeah. um, and the science of reading and all of the stuff that's going on in that conversation here. I am sure that New Zealand is not immune to this science of reading debate. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in my mind, I would just start there with like how literacy is actually taught. It seems like the cell phone thing is kind of a bandaid on a problem, on a problem, but I agree. that's just my take. But, but he made the news. I will be. In- yes, you made the news and I will be interested to see what follow on effects, especially for like socializing and stuff, a cell phone ban would have because yeah. I'm, I don't think we've been, at least around here, I haven't seen a lot of examples of schools that have fully committed to Mm-mm. absolutely banning cell phones. And I'm curious to know, because yeah. my other thing is like, okay, if you ban them during the school day, but the kid is still addicted to them when they're at home, have you really actually yeah. done all that much to mitigate the bad effects of cell phones? But I do think there's something to be said for fostering a sense of community by discouraging the use of screens like there's probably some positive effect to come out of that but but i'm not sure it's gonna deal with the literacy crisis that seems like a bigger issue with how we teach literacy this is going to annoy every single secretary in every single school forever and ever and ever Mm -hmm. because all they're going to be doing is having kids coming in can i call my mom yeah. I need lunch money. I need to ride home. I don't, you know, whatever. That's what I mean. In the year 2024. <laughs> We're kind of past this. Are are we maybe past the point of, yeah, it, it just seems a little weird and a little backward mm-hmm. uh, as a way to address a literacy issue. But that yeah. that's just me speaking as a technologist and agree. someone who's interested in, in learning in classrooms. I'm not sure that this is, we'll keep I'm an not eye sure out. it's the answer, but I'd love to see if it makes any difference at all. Yeah, so. I hope so. Okay, should we get into the main topic for this week? What are we talking about? We're talking about the Library of Alexandria. Yes. Which we have talked about a few times. We have. And we finally committed to making it. An entire episode. An entire episode. Uh Uh-huh. And it went nothing like I thought it would. Okay. So this was interesting. Didn't turn out how you thought when Mm -mm. it started? Okay. Well, Mm -mm. before we do that, can we talk a little bit about just, uh, since it's a brand new year, what were your favorite reads uh, since we're talking about libraries? What were Mm -hmm. your favorite books of uh, 2023 just to to kick us off? I read a few Simone St. James books. Okay. I enjoyed those quite a bit. I think my favorite book, I know I've already talked about it, but it was 112263 by Mm. Stephen King. Mm Mm-hmm. I finished the book with another Stephen King book called Mr. Mercedes. It was pretty fun. But I think those were my highlights. I think I read, how many books did I say? 45 books last year. It's a lot of books. And this year I set my goal for 35. Uh-huh. So we'll see. Well, you increased your goal because your goal was like... My goal was 30. Uh-huh. And I increased it to 35. Mm-hmm. Um, but I killed my goal last year. But I'm afraid I can't always do 45 in a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I like TV and movies too much and I love to play video games. And so sometimes those take yeah. up my reading hours. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. What about you? So I finally finished The Idea Factory, mm-hmm. which is the, the year long book. book. Yeah. Well, I was reading that book for probably, I guess, maybe even two years because I didn't want it to end. So I, and it's not a thing where you have to really remember what's going on because mm-hmm. it's just, it's like a, it's sort of a history sure. of Bell Labs and the innovation that happened there and, uh, you know, AT&T and Western Electric and all these, all these entities that have to do with Bell Labs and the innovation there. But anyway, I finally finished that book. It was really a neat read. If you're into information theory and technology mm-hmm. or computing or just communications technology in general, if you care about how we communicate with technology, it's definitely a fun, cool. fun read. So I finally fi- finished that one. That was a big one for me for 2023. I talked about this one too, but the information kind of related, but that was a great book. Um, I'm almost done with Lord of the Rings. I'm finishing that up. Mm-hmm. That was my big project for the the second half of 2023 okay. reading reading wise i also like the midnight library we listened to that one together mm-hmm. on audiobook yeah I, I liked it a lot yeah. it was fun so those are just some some reads in our personal libraries mm-hmm. so yeah we hope you are all setting your own reading goals for 2024 improving yeah. the literacy rates <laughs> yes we gotta work on this literacy yeah. so yeah those are just notes on our, our personal libraries heading into the library of alexandria okay so how did you uh how did you get interested in talking about the Library of Alexandria? I think, mm, how did this happen? I know in a previous episode, I had shared that the way that the Library of Alexandria got a lot of their books was to take the books that were coming in to the docks on the ships and copy them. And that was how they would boost their library numbers. Yeah. The one thing worth mentioning before we jump into the Library of Alexandria mm-hmm. is that this was really hard to research it turns out when you research something this old, there's a lot of versions of the story. So we cannot say that this is 100% accurate. Yeah. Just because of um, how much of this has been lost and how many versions of it exist. There is a fun... I was looking for something for the trivia question, and I didn't end up using this. But somewhere I heard somebody claim that... So we're, we're going to be talking about Alexander the Great a lot because he had a lot to do with the history of how we got the Library of Alexandria. But... Somewhere, somebody claimed that Alexander the Great had heterochromia, like eyes of two different colors. Really? And I went and try, tried to find any source that said that, mm-hmm. and I could not find one anywhere. So it was just like, how did this come into being, this yeah. rumor? Somebody just posted it on the internet somewhere, and everybody just believed what that was it was true. I read some, I think it was Plutarch, somebody claimed that maybe Plutarch had said something about have, him having two different color eyes, but the closest thing I could find was that maybe one eye was a little bit darker than the other, or maybe his pupil had been dilated from a war injury, so people mm, thought his eyes were two different that colors. Way. But even that, I couldn't I couldn't substantiate, even with... I mean, Plutarch is kind of the go-to guy for sure. this, this area. I trust that. Well, I mean, you have to think of it, though. It's like one guy... One guy has written much of the history of this time in the world that we know of now. Yeah. So you got to take everything well, with a little bit of a... And as we get into, like, the actual building itself, everything I was reading was like, well, somebody wrote about this building that they saw, so we're guessing it's it. Yeah. And so, because nobody was like, oh, the Library of Alexandria, colon, a description. It was like they were describing the port as they came in on a ship, and Mm -hmm. so people are reading these diaries and being like, well, that was probably the library. And so... We did our best, is what I'll say. Yeah, yeah. I guess I would just say some of this stuff is a little murky just due to things being lost to history, mm-hmm. for sure. But we did our best. Okay, so the Library of Alexandria was not the first library of antiquity. Which was also the first thing that I was like, oh. <laughs> A lot of people think that it is. There was another notable, more famous library at the time, that, and I think it's the oldest known library from what I could, could discern from the scholarship. But this library was assembled by Ashurbanipal, who was the king of the Assyrians. How many times did you practice that name? Uh, well, I'm not even sure I'm saying it correctly, but... That was so good. Uh, okay, thank Phonetically you. Phonetically speaking, that's it. Ashurbanipal. I nice don't know. Job. Uh, the king of the Assyrians, sometime between 668 and 631 BCE. So this is old. It's been a minute. Uh, yes. And this was this library was located in the royal palace at Nineveh, which is in present-day northern Iraq. And this 
library is interesting because it included tens of thousands of clay tablets inscribed with cuneiform writing. It's like a a system of writing that was used to record several different languages. So that's an interesting thing. But anyway, clay tablets in various languages and... The Ashurbanipal Library is the first to represent an effort to collect and organize literary texts that didn't have practical purpose uh, to the running of the government. They were writing for fun? (laughs) Yeah, that's... When you think about it... I love that. The first record-keeping, especially official, like, state-governed record-keeping, it was all about, like, who owes me money and where my my territories and my slaves are and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the process of the government. So this was, like, the first known library that was collecting texts that didn't have those practical purposes. And this was the library that held the epics of creation and Gilgamesh, which we also just mentioned a few episodes ago. Yeah. Yeah. So very much like the library of Alexandria, Nineveh was also destroyed by fire. (laughs) Yes. Except hold on here. So Nineveh was consumed by fire around 612 BC when the Babylonians led an alliance to lay siege to the city. But because they were written on clay, most of the tablets were baked even harder than they originally oh, were, which makes them among the best preserved documents from nice. thousands of years of Mesopotamian history. So a lot of these tablets Ha-ha. from Nineveh... Jokes on them. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these tablets from Nineveh are now in the British Museum. Oh, dang it. <laughs> Go figure. They were excavated in the 1840s and 50s. No way. Uh, I was reading about this. The assistant to the guy who originally discovered the Nineveh Library... Uh-huh did like a follow-up expedition where he found another, it was sort of like catty corner to the original location. He found another room of the Royal library or something. But when he shipped them all back, he didn't label where they came from. So like everything is now interspersed. So there are these thousands of clay tablets and nobody will probably ever know where they actually came from in Nineveh because of this guy in like the 1850s. Idiot. Yeah. So anyway, have you been to the British Museum? Yes. Okay. I mean, they I, just make me mad. The I, more that I read about them, the angrier I get. Yeah. About I, what I they actually got. want us to, and it's on our long term plans, is to have a whole conversation about museum collection management. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. So did you see these? I don't you? remember. I was really, really young. Oh, okay. If I went back and looked through pictures, I'm sure I could find some Fun. things that we saw, but I was too little to really know or care what I you was You weren't looking, looking for the Library of Gilgamesh I or the Epic of Gilgamesh? I was looking for the Epic of Gilgamesh. I understand. No. Okay. So that was this this other library, uh, Ashurbanipal Library. It, that's just to note that like everyone thinks that the Library of Alexandria is like the ancient library, and it, it wasn't the only one. It was just probably... Maybe the maybe one of the most famous ones, the biggest one, and also one that was attempting to collect texts from all over the world mm-hmm. rather than just local and regional texts. The story of the Library of Alexandria starts with the successors of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great was the king of Macedon, a very successful military commander. I don't think he actually lost a single military engagement i don't think he did but that might also be one of those things that got boiled down for us when we were younger yeah i think that had he lived longer he kind of died an untimely death he was like i think 32 or 33 when he died he was pretty young when he died really yeah i think that had he maybe lived longer that that (laughs) sparkling record might not have been quite so sparkling but alexander the great king of Macedon, he's a highly successful military commander, and he was a protege of Aristotle. He studied under Aristotle in his early years. Um, Aristotle was basically his tutor, personal tutor. I have tutor. done so little with my life. I am <laughs> older than Alexander the Great. You haven't conquered kingdoms? And I did not study with Aristotle. Across Europe and Asia and Africa yet? Okay. Well, get on that. I have a lot to work on. Um, 2024, sorry. I'm already behind. So, after the death of Alexander, which might have been from natural causes, but also might have been a poisoning or assassination of some sort, we don't really know. Eventually, the Macedonian kingdom descends into a couple of decades of power struggles because he doesn't name a successor, Alexander the Great. He he goes on these huge military campaigns, captures up all this territory, Mm -hmm. and doesn't have a successor worked out. Yikes. So there's this war between his possible successors. And at the end of this, we sort of settle the whole Hellenic world gets settled into 
three-ish power blocks um, ruled by former generals and compatriots of Alexander. And the first is the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt. And that's the one that we're going to focus on a lot here. That was initially led by Ptolemy the first. Then we have the West Asian Seleucid Empire. And then the third one is the Antigonid dynasty, which ruled much of Hellenistic Greece until it came under the control of the Roman Republic later. We're focusing on the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt now. This was originally led by Ptolemy I Soter, a Macedonian general and one of Alexander's most closely trusted friends and confidants. Alexandria, the city, was founded in 331 BC by Alexander. It became the capital of the Ptolemaic kingdom and an excess of Greek culture. And we'll see that the Ptolemaic rulers, they tended to kind of blend Greek and Egyptian custom. Part of that was because they wanted to be seen as legitimate by... Mm. The Egyptian people, so they would do things like marry their siblings because that was the Egyptian way. It, it gets messy, but anyway, <laughs> Ptolemy the first, soon after he is sort of established as as king of this region, he enlists the efforts of an advisor by the name of Demetrius of Phaleron. He is a former Athenian politician. He's a member of the Peripatetic school. He fled to Alexandria after a fall from power in Athens. And around 295 BCE, Demetrius is charged with the task of founding the library and Museon, which is basically a place dedicated to the study of muses, the Library of Alexandria. And the library was constructed during the reign of Ptolemy I and his son and successor, Ptolemy II. Library of Alexandria is one of the earliest attempts at a universal library. That's what I was mentioning before. There were Many libraries known to collect local and regional texts at this time, but perhaps none before Alexandria were known to have aggressively sought texts from all over the world and texts in different languages and texts from different intellectual traditions. Yeah, so all of this work kind of established Alexandria as the capital of learning and knowledge, and that was largely due to the library. Um, and it was a place where really great scholars went to study and work. Yeah. Um, it was definitely the place to be if this you were a scholar. This was definitely a time when there were places in cities that were built specifically to just have intellectual activity in. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. can you imagine city modern city design? I mean, we kind of constrain go here all to be smart. Yeah, like we constrain all this to kind of university campuses now or schools or whatever. But can you imagine designing a city around this? Is where people are going to go to think together. Mm -hmm. That's what we've got here at the Library mm -hmm. of Alexandria. So, and. Even though it was certainly there to be a place of thinking, one of the goals of the library was certainly to display their wealth and just to flex on people when they visited Alexandria. <laughs> library of Alexandria, flexing on the ancient world. It really was. Okay, yeah. So this library very quickly acquired a ton of papyrus scrolls. Yeah. Papyrus is way more flammable than clay. I'm just going to throw that out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they acquired these <laughs> largely because of the Ptolemaic king's aggressive and well-funded methods of procuring those texts. Uh -huh. Anytime that I was trying to find exactly how many scrolls might have been housed there, it went from anywhere from 40,000 to maybe 400,000. There's really no oh. way of knowing. Okay. At its height. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Very inaccurate. Yeah, it would be data. hard to know because it, of the whole be. burning bit, but yeah. But one thing about the Library of Alexandria is that it was very well placed because Egypt had an ideal habitat for the papyrus plant. Ah. So they had lots of materials for the books. Okay. So as I mentioned earlier, they would often take the books that came in on the ships and copy them. And they would usually return the copies to the ships and keep the originals. Rude. Yeah. Okay, I did read that they, they did, did that. They did that a few times. Well, I read that there was a purpose to that, actually. And I get it, but it's still pretty rude uh they they thought that if they took the originals it was less likely to have clerical errors for like copying right. over and stuff so they're like oh if we're thinking about getting closest to the original that's what they should what use. the author right. originally thought when they were writing or whatever we should get close we should get the originals yeah but maybe just tell them that you, you know. yeah or just like you take somebody's can you imagine that today like we yeah like you gave somebody your first edition book and yeah they give you back yeah they're like here's this thing i <laughs> Printed off my home printer. Right. Uh, that's basically what they, they were like, doing. They like stapled a title page on it. Yeah, I thought that was pretty tricky. Mm -hmm. I did read one story about uh, they had borrowed a collection from, I think, another government. It was. Maybe it was even Athens I think or it was. You can obviously, there's like all kinds of friction between 
these kingdoms, but like Athens is a big place of intellectual development at this time too. But I'm pretty sure it was somewhere in Athens they had borrowed this very it was original text original collection one of the of one of the philosophers mm-hmm. it might have been uh homeric texts maybe which were a big deal everybody wanted homeric texts the iliad odyssey and the things Sky like that Homer. those poems yeah. yeah poems were very important to the ancient world but anyway they borrowed this collection and they gave up some collateral like a huge huge sum, sum of money because because Athens was like, you're going to take our originals and not give them back. So we need collateral. So they gave them the collateral and then they did not give the originals back. They gave back copies and mm-hmm. they just told them to keep the gold, the fee or whatever. The they didn't was, care. Yeah. They cared more about the original text, mm-hmm. the books, than they did about getting the collateral mm-hmm. back. So anyway, I just thought that was pretty interesting because it was indicative of their priorities at the time. They were very interested in the original texts. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Okay. So another way that they got... The books uh, to the library was that they would just send out royal agents who had a ton of money on them, and they would purchase and collect as many books as they could. And they really didn't care what the subject or who had written it. That would be such a cool job. Yeah, can you imagine? I'm the royal book buyer for Ptolemy the First. Yeah. Like, how cool would that be? Okay. Um, Like Chelsea said, they did prefer older copies of texts over newer ones because they assumed that the older one had the preferred, you know, written word. But their program involved, I love this, trips to the book fairs of Rhodes and Athens. Book Imagine a book fair in Rhodes. Scholastic could never. Scholastic book fair, Rhodes edition. And they were particularly focused on acquiring manuscripts from Homer. And his, his poems, Homeric poems, are considered the foundation of Greek education. And they're basically revered above all other. So he's the top of the list. Well, I know that those poems were originally passed down via oral tradition. Um, and they also wanted to focus on tracking down the original works of Aristotle, but many mm-hmm. of those had been lost due to bad storage conditions. Uh, basically, after he died, yeah, um, it was went a from mess, person to person, and they just weren't well kept. It went to like one. I think Aristotle bequeathed them to somebody at the Lyceum, uh, like one of his students or something, and then they just got kind of lost and broken up. And I remember this. They're only, they're only a fraction of what they think. Uh, is like the original corpus of Aristotle's works. We only have like a fraction of a fraction it. of them, uh, the existing Aristotelian texts, mm-hmm. so, which is pretty interesting because those are some of the biggest ones. And if you're a philosophy student of Western philosophy, like it's like fascinating to think we only have a small slice mm-hmm. of what he actually produced. So anyway, yeah. So again, they focused on Homer, they focused on Aristotle, but they really wanted any book about anything by anybody. So about the library physically... The exact layout is pretty unknown, but the way that it's described, I think the easiest way for us to understand it is to kind of view it as more of a college campus. It seemed to be less literally one building, and it seemed to be a collection of places. Like, there was a room for meals. They had meeting rooms. They had reading rooms. They had lecture halls. They had gardens. Wow. And the library itself wasn't affiliated at all, so there was a lot of educational freedom for those that studied there. And so there were all kinds of texts on So you didn't have to be, like, enrolled? Nope. We talk a lot about missing third places, especially in American culture in modernity. We talk about the giant hole in the the fabric of our society represented by places where you don't have to pay to occupy them, that where people can come together and just be social and think together and talk together. That's what they have going on here. This library of Alexandria sounds exactly like that kind of a... Mm-hmm prominent place in the city where people can come together without commercial purpose Mm -hmm. to exchange ideas. So that's as much as we can really say for certain about the actual physical place itself. So there is some options of what happened to it Mm -hmm. and a little bit about its legacy. I had always been taught, learned, I don't know where this came from, that it had burnt down. And it seems that there is some truth to that. The famous burning was an accident, thanks to Julius Caesar. Oh, no. Uh-huh. It seems that Caesar did intentionally set fire to the wharfs and the docks, oh. but that it had spread. The only thing I read about its location was it was close to the, yes. the docks. Yes. Uh-huh. So it seems that he didn't mean to actually burn the library down. Okay. It seemed like a tactical kind of a, a decision that was made that then unfortunately spread too far. Okay. So... Parts of it, all of it, who knows, did burn. When was this? When was the burning? 48 BC. Mm-hmm. E? BCE? Yeah. Yes. Okay. 
there is a chance that that fire actually burnt down a warehouse that stored books for the library and not the library itself. Uh-huh. And following that war, there is proof that parts of the library remained because there were written accounts of people visiting the research institution 20 years after that war. Oh, okay. So this is where the history of it becomes very shaky. Yeah. I, because I'm, we don't know, did uh-huh. they rebuild? Uh-huh. Was it all of it? Was it part of it? Was it a storage warehouse? Yeah, was I do it? remember being taught that it was like the whole thing burned to the ground. Yeah, right. Um, and because the whole tragedy of the story, right, is that these it's lost. Yeah. We lost so many Text. Important text. Then. Right, right. Okay, but we, so, so we might not have lost quite as many as we no. thought we did, or maybe we did, we're not really sure. I think if I had to summarize it, I would say there was a fire. Probably the... the Things were lost. Yeah, the people who were keeping the records were probably at this library, so they were out of a job, maybe, and sure. didn't have time to yeah. write down what was lost. Yeah. So, interesting. Okay. So, the one piece of history that seemed accurate was that he didn't intentionally set fire to the library. It just happened as part of the Battle of the War. So, like I said, what was really lost is hard to say. We know that some of it existed 20 years later because people were still writing about being there and learning there. But we just don't know what was exactly burned down that day. So, the downfall of the library. After Alexandria came under Roman rule, the city status and the library diminished. So the Museon still existed But membership was granted not on the basis of scholarly achievement, but rather on the basis of distinction in government, the military, or even if you were a good athlete, you could now get in. Oh, so it's like a merit-based Yeah, so what had once been a place for people just to go and learn now became exclusive. (sighs) And at the same time, other libraries started popping up around the Mediterranean, and they became more scholarly. And so that kind of didn't help the Library of Alexandria, because it had lost who knows what in a fire. And then on top of that, when the Romans came to rule, they changed the way that it functioned. And so it was no longer viewed as, you know, kind of the place to be for the scholars. Interesting. So that's kind of the end of the original Library of Alexandria, Mm -hmm. as we know it. It kind of just fell off. People went other places to learn. And so, you know. Rome Rome being Rome kind of has a tendency to Yeah, they're like that. Shake things up. Okay. All right. So today, if you were to go to Alexandria, you would see a library called the Bibliotheca Alexandrina. So the idea of reviving the old library dates back to 1974. I want to say it has to go way back past that, but this is when the uh, article talked about. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to guess they thought about it for longer than this. Sure. But anyways, in 1974. Some modern person (laughs) had the idea. Yeah. So in 1974, the president of Egypt and UNESCO worked together um, and they established a committee to set up and work with Alexandria University. And they selected a plot of land for this new library. It took a lot of time for this to come to be. Because construction work didn't begin until 1995. Wow. It had been something around $220 million that, you know, in the U.S. dollars, as we would understand it, had been spent to build it. And it was not inaugurated until October of 2002. Hmm. In 2009, the library received a donation of 500,000 books from the Library of France. And so that gift of 500,000 books actually makes the Library of Alexandrina the sixth largest francophone library in the world wow okay you're welcome um who knew the current library has room for eight million books and they prominently feature arabic french and english written texts huh wow yeah i do love this period of history I like do too. the whole there's a lot going on but yeah, yeah it is very interesting especially with just how much modern like more recent history I've been reading Mm -hmm. (laughs) to go back and read this ancient history because everyone, and then like even the accounts of it that we have, I think I was mentioning Plutarch and like these people, they're all just talking about military and intellectual might. And it's just all about domination. It's Mm -hmm. truly about dominating and organizing. It's a very different mindset to get in, but it is fascinating to consider people on the forefront of thinking that, it's worthwhile to write things down for the sake of history. Yeah. <laughs> we so take that for granted now. We do. And it's just like, this was revolutionary. People did not have right. stores of history, of literature, of information. They just didn't, these places mm-hmm. did not always exist. I think anyway. the takeaway is it was the height of education and learning for a period of time. There was definitely a fire. 
And it kind of fell off. I think that's about as, you know, I think it's inaccurate to say the whole thing burned down that day. Yeah. I think it's worth mentioning that parts of it did for certain, but the ultimate, you know. Because Caesar was having a temper tantrum. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm going to guess Cleopatra was involved in that Probably. But the other thing I learned about this, her grave has been lost. Cleopatra's? Yeah. I do know, I was going to say too, they, they, uh, kidnapped alexander's body the ptolemy that founded alex the library of alexandria the second yeah. or the first the first okay the dad the, he so the ptolemy that found that founded the library was like bffs with alexander and he he was yeah he like diverted the body from being where it originally was going to be buried and like took it with him because there's something about like being the one to bury the previous ruler's body oh. was like part of the right of succession or something. So he took his bestie's body. Yeah. I think Imagine. it was originally maybe going to, I can't remember. I'm My friends better watch thing, out. But, yeah. But he just like took it with him for a while. It also was like, supposedly his body didn't start decomposing for like a certain number of days afterwards. And people thought that that made him a God superior. He also believed that he was a God at some point. In his Alexander. Life. Alexander. Yeah. I'm not surprised by that. People are talk about, well, the historical record talks about his increasing megalomania at this time. Like the more he conquers. Oh, I was going to say. It's like Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. He's it was very much like that but the thing about the whole his death his unexpected death why Uh i think it might have been a poisoning is because toward the end of the campaign right before all this stuff starts to happen with the three different Uh power blocks and ptolemy there's an almost mutiny that is kind of averted at the last moment because he's alexander has the idea to put basically put representatives of conquered peoples in government okay which when you're thinking about trying to build stability and spreading yourself out over uh-huh. all those different regions, it's probably a good idea yeah. to like get local buy-in. But yeah. there are a lot of people, as you can imagine, States who rights, didn't yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> there were a lot of people who didn't like that idea very oh. much and revolted. So like, he had made enemies within his own ranks at the point of his own untimely death. Oh, wow. And the story goes that he was like drinking very, very heavily one night and then like fell ill and sort of never recovered and then just A little iffy. So anyway, yeah, there's a lot of fun history to revisit here. interesting. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, anyway, Ptolemy just sort of swiped his body. And was like, dibs. Yoink. I'm gonna deal with this later. So yeah, the other thing I learned was that Cleopatra and Antony's graves are lost. They believe them to be somewhere near Alexandria, but... Wow. It'll probably turn up like that one random king that was just in a parking lot, remember? Yes. I think that was what? He was the crooked was one. It a R- Richard? Whichever one had the messed up back, that was him. Richard III? I think it was Richard III. He was, they were like digging for a parking lot and they found his little broken body. A crude grave in the yeah. Friary Church. Yeah. He was the really sick one. Oh, I, I searched for that for him. I searched Richard the Third body, and there are like X-ray photos yeah. of a spine that has it's a like C in yes. it. It is so he bent. He was so ill. Wow. Yeah. Anyways, what is this scoliosis or something? Um, I feel it like is it bent. It was more than that. I would hope. I think he was. Oof. Is he the one with the chin? It is scoliosis. No, Battle wounds and signs of scoliosis or curvature of the spine. And yes, he was the parking lot one. Was he so. with the one with the chin though too? I don't know. What was wrong with his chin? No, there's that family that had the really pronounced chin. Are you talking about the Habsburgs? Yes, the Habsburgs. Okay. <laughs> different guy, different chin. Different, different dynasty. It's hard to keep them all straight when they all sleep together and just keep having kids. <laughs> this is why when I teach things like Oedipus, I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about the family shrub. The family shrub. <laughs> and when I teach Fall the House of Usher, I'm like, the family shrub. <laughs> These themes persist. Anyways. Okay. We learned a lot. We sure did. This was a fun one. I can't wait to see what you pull together. (laughs) All of that. Okay. Are we ready for the fill in the blank? Yes. Okay. Would you, uh, should I do last episode's question? Oh, yeah. We talked about the Muppets. We did. We talked about Sesame Street and the Muppets. And here is the question from last episode. The original prototype for Kermit, the famous Jim Henson Muppet, introduced in 1955, had eyes made of what? And it was halves of ping pong balls. It makes sense when you look at it. 
It does make sense. Yeah, they look like I would like have thought that. his eyes were a little bigger, but I suppose not. Uh-huh. I'll talk her with the frog balls. No, you're right. That okay, what's this episode's question? Okay. We're going to talk about Ptolemy II again. Mm, the son of the guy we were talking about. Okay. Yeah. So this question is about Ptolemy II reigning at the time of another famous building being built in Alexandria. Mm. So at the time of this building being built, it was one of the tallest man-made structures in the world at more than 330 feet. The building was also one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Unfortunately, three earthquakes damaged the structure and it became a damaged ruin that eventually fell into the sea. So what was that famous building that Ptolemy II was reigning during the building of, along with the Library of Alexandria? Hmm. Okay. okay. Would you like to tell us what you learned in the last couple of weeks to kick off 2024, your very first thing that you learned? Yeah. Okay. I was reading about the Stanley Cups, not <laughs> hockey. The no, Stanley Mugs. Not there we hockey. go. Okay. Because Chelsea and I got Stanley Cups yes. for Christmas. Yes. Big fan of them. They keep things very cold or very hot. Yeah. They're great. They do their job. They do. So I have known Stanley to exist my entire life, right? I remember my, I think like my grandpa had a Stanley mug. Oh. Are they the ones who make like the the thermos? Yeah, that's them. Okay. That's them. See, I didn't know, I didn't put two and two together that the basic white girl mug was like the same as the giant canteen thermos. Stanley had always been like a working person's canteen, whatever. Yeah. It was just like that industrial green. Tough. It's the green. You can't. Yeah. The Stanley green is so iconic. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's the big thermos. It's yes. whatever. Yes. Okay. So they had always been a, a very successful company. They were doing $73 million in sales in 2019. Um, and that was a big increase from previous years because they had been marketed as, right, this like working person's coffee cup, basically, coffee mug. So in 2020, their sales bounced to $94 million. When everybody because had to keep... <laughs> everybody is at home yeah. and we need a way to keep all of the water cool. Coffee hot all day. Yeah, off. or yeah, yeah, yeah. In 2021, their sales doubled to more than $194 million. Wow. And so basically what I learned was just that their willingness to shift the market to be like, we could be a working person's coffee canteen or thermos to also being what every, I'm going to guess, white woman in suburbia is also carrying yes. their stuff yes. in. The suburban white woman market has As been we tapped. are very guilty of. Um, <laughs> yeah. But basically their willingness to evolve into what they have become. And it was already the big thermos that we're all carrying is one that they already had a version of. All they did was start changing the colors and leaning into it a bit more. Mm-hmm. And so basically their willingness to shift and evolve is what has um, nearly quadrupled their yearly earnings yeah i don't think until you just said it that i would have known that it was the same company yeah. that did the like i think of like my grandfather having yeah. like a lunchbox going to work in the factory yeah. with like a giant no, stanley like, thermos yeah. okay so, so those big green thermos that's them huh and like the lid you screwed off and that was the cup yes okay that's them very practical so anyways that's stanley same company they're like over a hundred and some years old the entire company but anyways, they've just, they basically said, okay, white, white, white ladies, buy them up and just kept churning out different colors. Okay, and they create, I mean, they create like lists now, like, like you have to join. It's almost like a sneakers drop on the Nike app to get some of these colors. Jeez. Yeah. So, um, the article I was reading was talking about how you don't always have to create something new. It's a matter of finding the right outlet for it, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. So anyways, they huh. already, I mean, they already had a great product, so. It's built to last. Yeah. So what'd you learn? Okay. I learned, we've been watching, uh, catching up on The Gilded Age, which is an HBO show that we like about New York around the whatever, 18 whenevers, late 1800s. It's after the Civil War. Uh, late 1800s, New York. And one of the storylines in this recent season was following tangentially kind of following the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, which is happening concurrently. And what I learned was that there's a woman, an engineer named Emily Warren Roebling, who took over the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge and saw it through to completion after her husband, who had been the chief engineer on the project, fell ill with decompression sickness. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) 
That's an illness to be aware of. If you can imagine, diving is a part of working on the Brooklyn Bridge. I don't know if I I think the diving that gave him the bends happened during the Brooklyn Bridge project, but I might be wrong about that. He might have just been diving. That would make sense that you're diving too. Yeah. So the chief engineer during this time gets decompression sickness. His father is actually the one who had been the architect of the project, the Brooklyn Bridge project, but he got tetanus after an accident at the bridge site and died. What kind of... So the father dies of tetanus, passes on to the son who gets decompression sickness, and then his wife takes over. Her name, Emily Warren Roebling. She is kind of like the champion of this project, especially in its later years. There's all this politicking that needs to go on to see it through, and people keep trying to take the project away from them because they're like, he's not really working on it, and we don't like the idea of a woman doing all of this work. But she was a real astute political navigator as well as an accomplished engineer and architect and this is from the wikipedia page about this but i wanted to read the quote because it was fun it said the brooklyn bridge was completed in 1883 in advance of the official opening carrying a rooster as a sign of victory emily roebling was the first to cross the bridge by carriage at the opening ceremony, Roebling was honored in a speech by Abram Stevens Hewitt, who said that the bridge was, quote, an everlasting monument to the sacrificing devotion of a woman and of her capacity for that higher education from which she has been too long disbarred, end quote. <laughs> that so, is so cool. Very a rooster. Cool. Yeah. So her husband died before the bridge or just wasn't well enough to do the bridge? Her husband was bedridden the entire time she was working on the bridge. So she, she was kind of consulting with him, and that's how she was a kind of allowed by all these political officials to keep working on this. She because was like, Oh, I'm talking, I'm in close consultation with my bedridden husband, but there are a lot of people who think that she was just it running was really kind of her. That's so cool. I mean, she really was sort of running the show, but she fought for, uh, on her husband's behalf because city officials wanted to basically demote him and make him not the chief engineer of the project anymore. And she kept insisting, no, it has to be him. It has to be him. And he stayed on it till, its completion. So a woman is responsible that is so cool. for the completion of the Brooklyn Bridge. It's a beautiful bridge. It is. It's a really cool bridge. It's a neat piece of architecture. Way to go, Emily. That's what I learned. I rode over that bridge once on a bicycle. That's very cool. It's a lot of work. I would bet. You don't realize it until you're pedaling. No. What yeah. kind of work that bridge That's is. That's a lot of pedaling. It was a lot of pedaling. Beautiful bridge, though. Good for her. Well, that's fun. Yeah. The bends. Next time we... I will not be diving. Yeah. I also want to know about the accident that caused tetanus. I, I did. There was so much to this story. There were so many <laughs> layers. Kept... And then you said rooster, and I was like, okay, that's there, enough. There are roosters, the worst. there's tetanus. This is the worst mad gab of all time. <laughs> Decompression sickness. Yeah. You got all of it. Okay. How many more bingo board squares can we cross? Off? Yes. Okay. Way all to right. go, Emily. I think that's about it. Uh, do you have any final thoughts to wrap up our first episode of 2024? Nope. Okay. Do you? I don't. I just hope you all have a great new year. I'm looking forward to it. I am cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Is how I'm going to approach it. Great. Alrighty. All we right. will see you in two weeks for the hundredth. Yep. A hundy. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Listeners, thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're your co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Adams. And I'm Katie Day. Find our show notes, archives, and resources, sign up for our newsletter, or get in touch with us via the contact form at 16to1.com, all spelled out. We are so grateful for our listener support. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the show and telling your friends or colleagues about it. The show is edited and produced by you, Chelsea Adams, and you're also responsible for our show's music. And you, Katie Day, serve as lead researcher and social media manager. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. I can't say that. The Bibliothèque Nationale de France. De France.